Father God, we give you thanks that you are here with us, that you want to meet with each one of us today. Thank you that you've met with some of us this morning already, and yeah, we pray, Lord God, that we might be open to all that you would have to say. I pray, Lord God, that there might be nothing in me which gets in the way of people hearing, that I might fade into the background, that people might just encounter Jesus. I just offer this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone know who the woman on the screen is? And this is actually the same woman. One is when she's younger and one is when she's older. Does anyone know who she might be? I'd be surprised actually at this age. Her name is Elizabeth Blackwell. Can anyone tell me why Elizabeth Blackwell would have been famous in history? She is the first female to qualify as a doctor in the United States, and she is also the first woman to have her name in the British General Medical Council's medical register as a doctor. Elizabeth was actually born in this country, in Bristol, but her family emigrated to America when she was 11. And while she was growing up and their family fell on hard times and where they, they set up a school in their home. But when the fam a family friend became terminally ill and claimed that she would have had much better treatment had the doctor been a woman than the man. Elizabeth decided, oh, I'll do something about that. I'll train as a doctor. And she applied to numerous medical colleges, and every single one of them said no. Except one, the Geneva Medical Center in New York. And they didn't exactly say yes either, they just said, well, what we'll do is we'll let the faculty decide, we'll let the other students decide whether to agree to a woman joining the ranks, because they assumed that all the male students would just come, come on. So if they can have a vote, and if they vote, you can come in. And as a joke, they voted yes, purely as a joke. And she gained admittance in 1847. And two years later, despite facing all sorts of resentment and prejudice, Elizabeth Blackwell became the first person to receive an MD degree from an American medical school. And she, she actually left America. She worked in Paris and London for a couple of years. But she came back to America in 1851 to set up a practice in New York. But she couldn't get any patients. And in fact, she couldn't even find someone to rent her a room from which she could practice. She tramped all around New York for two weeks solid until she found someone who just didn't want to know what she was doing with the room in one of the most, in one of the most downtrodden areas in New York. And she got a room for it. And the 
people who backed her were actually Quaker women. They were, they were always receptive to the goal of equal rights, and they decided, we will become Elizabeth's first patients. But she was still applying for a hospital at once, and no hospital would touch her. And finally, with some help from her Quaker friends, she did finally set up her own clinic in one of the worst slums in New York. And the clinic opened in March 1853. And she hung a sign out announcing that all patients would be treated free. And yet, for weeks, not a single person came. And then, one day, a woman arrived at the place in such agony that she didn't care who treated her, and she staggered up the steps into the clinic and collapsed in Elizabeth's arms. And Elizabeth treated her, and she recovered. But she was quite an influential person, and she went out and she told all her friends, there's this really, really good doctor in downtown New York. If you want someone to treat you, you want to go to her. And soon the practice was growing and growing. It eventually moved. And it's actually now a branch of the New York Infirmary. And Elizabeth's achievements are also recognised in this country too, at the University of Bristol, who have the Elizabeth Blackwell Institute for Health Research. But had she not been so resilient and determined, she would have been able to help no one. Had it not been for a few students playing a practical joke, she wouldn't have even got the chance to train. And how many people weren't here because they refused to be helped by a woman doctor? How many people found a prejudice and a lack of faith in her abilities stopped her help? And we catch a glimpse of something similar in Mark's Gospel this morning, where prejudice about Jesus stops him blessing the people of Nazareth the way that he has been doing in other parts of Galilee. This is going to be our last visit to Mark's Gospel for a little while. We've been in and out of it a few times over the last couple of years. Uh, and this chunk is the conclusion of a section which kind of started at the end of Mark 3. But at the end of Mark 3, it started where Jesus' own family turned up at Capernaum, thinking Jesus was out of his mind and trying to sort of take him home and tell him to calm kind of down a bit. And it ends with the whole village in which he was raised rejecting him. And you know what the saddest thing is? We never again hear of Jesus returning to Nazareth. So a little bit about Nazareth. During the last couple of weeks, I, I talked a little bit about Capernaum, and I made a point of saying that Capernaum wasn't very big. Well, even so, it was way bigger, far more vibrant, and way more prosperous than Nazareth. Nazareth was a real backwater. It was off the beaten track, a kind of insignificant place where nothing ever happened. 
In John's Gospel, when Jesus calls Philip to come and follow him, the first thing Philip does is go to his friend Nathaniel and say, Nathaniel, you know, come with me. We find the one that Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets wrote. And Nathaniel says, oh, I can't find myself. Who, who is it? And he says, his name's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And how does Nathaniel reply? Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And that kind of tells you all you need to know about Nazareth. First, it's estimated that in, Capar in the first century in Capernaum, the population was about 1,500. Nazareth, about 120 to 150 people. There's probably more people in most of your streets, maybe in some of your buildings. And they would be mostly linked through blood or marriage. It's a kind of place where everybody knew everybody else. And interestingly, a few years ago, there's an archaeologist who suggested that he may have found Jesus' childhood home. A guy called Professor Ken Dark of the University of Reading uncovered a brick and mortar dwelling which is actually believed to date to the first century. In the sort of area of Nazareth. It's on the side of a mountain, basically next to a convent. And it was, that what made them think this was that it was very, very well built for the time. It actually lasted a couple of hundred years. And the reason that the dark thought this might be Jesus is that this seemed to be the work of a craftsman, somebody who really knew what they were doing, and it caused them to suggest it might have been built by Joseph. Sadly, there's nothing to confirm or deny this. There's not, no sort of, Jesus was here, AD 15, you know, on the wall, to confirm. But in fairness, you know, so that they could, you know, they didn't know this was Jesus' house. But it, it's a small place, there can't be that many houses. So, it's as good a guess as anyone. But we're not told why, but at some point, Jesus appears to have left Nazareth, which is kind of down towards the bottom of our map here, just here. And he moves up to the northeast to Capernaum, down by the lake. And that appears to be where he had his base from when he did his ministry. It was from there that he draws most of his followers. But news has travelled about Jesus that he had his exploits in the Galilean region. So when he finally returns to the village where he's been raised, he's invited to be the guest teacher in the synagogue. And a couple of little points about this passage. One is that the more, one of the more generally accepted assumptions about Jesus' life before his ministry is that Jesus was a carpenter. If you ask even people who know made that by Jesus, what did he do before he was before he was a preacher? All people would know that he was a carpenter. I remember once I was in the hospital. And after a bike accident, and one of the nurses who was sort of treating me, and we were talking, and uh, she said to me, her fiancé was a carpenter, and I said, oh, that's funny, my boss is one of those. <laughs> but actually the word tecton, which is translated, oh, this, this, is, this is what a synagogue looked like, uh, uh, 
Dickinson goes with Malcolm around in the first century, and this is a reconstruction of what they reckon the Nazareth synagogue would have looked like. But the word, which is translated tecton, uh, is translated carpenter, is much wider. You know, it could be handyman, it could be builder, it was a craftsman. Tecton, tectons didn't just work with wood. They worked with stone, they worked with metal, they were the, they were the kind of person who could turn their hand to anything. But however we translate it, this is the only place in the Bible that we're told that about Jesus. Even when Matthew tells the same story, Jesus is referred to as the carpenter's son, not the carpenter. No mention is made of what Jesus did. The other thing about this is it's one of only two occasions in the Gospels where we read of Jesus being amazed. Matthew and Luke tell a story where Jesus is amazed, where he, where basically he meets a Roman centurion and he heals the Roman centurion's servant at a distance. You know, Jesus, the, the, the centurion comes to him and says, my servant needs to be healed. Jesus says, I'll come with you to your house. And the centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You know, if you just say the word and he'll be healed. And... Uh, we're told that Jesus was amazed at this guy's faith. Here, though, it's much less positive. In Nazareth, we are told that Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. And Luke gives a little more detail about what Jesus says that day. And in Luke, it's, it, it seems to be more what Jesus says that annoys the people and how he interprets Isaiah than just the fact of who he is. But in Matthew and Mark, it is far more basic than that. It is just basically, who does this guy think he is? Jesus begins to teach, and at first they are amazed. There's that word again. Where does he get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable things he's doing? And you'd think they might have been quite proud, you know. He's one of our own. He's making a name for himself. At last, somebody is putting Nazareth on the map. We don't have people like that come from here that much often, do they? But suddenly, they turn. And we're told they take offense at him. And that's less in the way we might offend somebody by saying, oh, don't like your hair much. Or we put on with <laughs> No, that's not what I'm kind of talking about. It's more to do with how prejudice stands in the way of hearing or appreciating what they're saying. One of the books I read for this suggested maybe they couldn't quite forget the precocious six-year-old that they'd known playing on their streets. Who knows, maybe, maybe there were some of them had some of this feeding troughs for their animals. But there's this sense of how can this guy suddenly be a great teacher and a rabbi? He's one of them. And they find it hard to accept him as anything else. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't the sisters here? And that phrase, isn't this Mary's son? It's a very unusual phrase. And it would have been a very rare thing for someone 
to refer to someone as their mother's son rather than their father's son in this culture. And some suggest the only reason for that is that Joseph was dead by this stage. Others are that Mark, although he hasn't said anything about Jesus' birth, is deliberately trying to avoid suggesting that Joseph is the real father of Jesus. But equally, there is another option. And it's one that, that is actually something of an insult. When they're questioning Jesus' parentage, perhaps harking back to that time when Mary and Joseph were engaged and the circumstances and the questions that would have surrounded her pregnancy. Remember, 120, 150 people didn't move about much. This was a place where everybody knew everybody else. And everybody else's business. I just thought, Mary's just some ordinary. And the sheer ordinariness of Jesus disqualified him from being anything more. And so they sat there and they could have focused on the wisdom of his teaching. They could have thought of the depth of his compassion. They could have marveled at the power that was at work in him. chapters earlier, in his own family, struggles to believe in him. And now in the rejection of his hometown, in the people who could not recognize God at work in the ordinary artisan who they knew. And Jesus responds, a prophet is not without honor in his own town. It's not without honor except in his own town, among his own relatives in his own home. Capernaum, it seems, had only ever known Jesus as the hero of the preacher, and that kind of made it easier for them to accept him. Back in Nazareth, familiarity just gave them more information to fashion a resistance. And we're told that as a result, Jesus couldn't do any miracles there, except lay hands on a few people who were ill and healed. Matthew softens it a little. He says Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
unawares matters the same effect. Just as Elizabeth Blackwell wasn't able to help the people of New York because they refused to believe that a woman could be a good doctor. So Jesus was unable to bless the people in his own time because they refused to accept that he could be anything more than a carpenter, a tectonic. But there was one tragic difference in those two stories. It might have taken desperate circumstances, but Elizabeth Blackwell did ultimately get the chance to make a difference. Jesus didn't stick around to argue his case. He didn't try to make the people of Nazareth see sense. He just lived on. And as I've mentioned already, we never read of Jesus coming back to Nazareth. And unbelief meant Nazareth missed out on all that Jesus could have done. And there's a sense in which familiarity has kind of led to a, a, a kind of contempt in our culture. And, you know, it's not that Jesus has been rejected as such. It's just that we kind of think that we are. And then they rejected that. Sometimes with good reason. But they haven't actually encountered Jesus as he is. And it's, but it's worth highlighting that isn't wider society that's, that, this, that the Gospels point to here. It's that those rejecting Jesus were not outsiders. It was those who are so often the case ought to have known that. I'm reminded of another passage later in the Bible in Revelation where Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It was a verse I often heard growing up in Belfast in gospel services to encourage people who weren't already believers to welcome Jesus into their heart, to come to faith. But actually in Revelation, that's not what Jesus is about at all. The context was that it's actually written to those who were believers, that they thought Jesus was in their midst and they were leaving him outside. And it challenges me about the risk that we can limit the work of God by what we refuse to accept or believe. Lest anyone think I'm pointing the finger, I'm going to hold up my hands, Harrow Baptist Church, uh, bless me for I have sinned. It has been many, many years since my last confession. I once left the healing service because I wasn't feeling well. <laughs> what could be more embarrassing than being healed? But even from a position of recognizing Jesus as a Christ, the Son of God and so on, we can kind of develop a bit of a familiarity. We can hear the stories and they can feel to touch us as they once did. We can become blasé about forgiveness. We can lose some of the passion that we had at first. In our own way, we can kind of want a kind of handyman Jesus who comes along and fixes things up for us, helps us out when we've got a bit of a problem in life to fix, gives us a bit of support and comfort. Yeah, that's good. But we don't want to necessarily in this rightful place as Lord, and we fail to grasp the life he calls us to. And Jesus doesn't force his way on us. If we want to live in an attitude of resistance and not belief, 
of the wave, even if the video complacency can have a restrictive, dampening mood on the work of the Holy Spirit. We can find ourselves thinking, ah, oh, here we go again. I've seen it all before, I've heard it all before. Oh, Andrew's off on another one. And we stop having any sense of expectation. Our hearts become hardened and Jesus struggles to do anything with us. You know, sometimes if we, or if God is ever going to truly connect with us, we need to get out of our own way. We need to stop being the thing that stops God. Because the thing that's stopping God being at work in us so often is us. And I pray that we never get that we will have an atmosphere of openness, curiosity, a willingness. Because those are essential aspects of the kingdom being established in our midst. Cynicism will kill everything pretty much stone dead. And then we miss out on so much of what Jesus wants to do in us. I want to end on a note of hope. Because Jesus never did go back to Nazareth again. But it wasn't the end for everyone in that congregation. And it seems Jesus did struggle with his own family. It's a fairly consistent picture we encounter in the Bible. And it's continued down through the years. It's actually a, it's actually a well-known trope. You know, never go back to, if you're a minister, never go back to your childhood church. But in the synagogue that day, there's at least two people that we know of that pop up again in the Bible. James and Jude. And in 30 years' time, James wouldn't be known for his resistance as he was throughout the gospel. He would be a pillar of the Jerusalem church. And Jude would write the short second last book of our New Testament. What changed them? Well, here's was the resurrection. Paul lists James as amongst the first people to whom the risen Jesus appears. But their past rejection didn't disqualify them from being part of his and it need not be that way for us. If we struggle with faith and doubt, if we can pray to be open, and if we struggle to even pray to be open, we can pray that we will be willing to be open to what God has to do for us. And if we even struggle with that, we can pray that we will be willing to be willing to be open to all that God has. I'm not going to go on. I'm doing, I did my dolls two weeks in a row before. Jesus assures us that if we ask, it will be it will be given. If we seek, we will find. If we keep knocking, it will open. But we need to allow Jesus to be who He is, not who we think He is, not who we want Him to be. And we need to get out of our own way and give Him the opportunity to work in our lives. And if we do that, he promises to bring to completion all that he longs to do with us.
grace and peace be with you. Let's be still for a moment.